This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Good afternoon, everybody. My name's Jenny Brown. Very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. And well, our writer this afternoon, I recently heard him describe himself as a guy who just loves making up stories. And well, the first of those stories was published in Norway in 1997. And those stories have now enthralled readers and won acclaim from critics all over the world. In the UK, his real breakthrough was with The Snowman. And I think when we all read The Snowman, the nation collectively sat at the edge of its seat. And now we have The Leopard, which has just been published in the UK too. He is now, with The Snowman and Leopard, the second top best-selling writer of fiction in the UK. And I just learned that a Nesbo novel is sold every 27 seconds in the UK, which is quite something. And of course, the tickets for this afternoon were one of the first to sell out. They, sell out, they sold out within hours of going on being available. So without any further ado, could you join me in welcoming the new Scandinavian king of crime fiction, Joe Nesbo. Joe, very warm welcome for the first time to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Yes. And you are a guy who just loves making up stories. Where did this love start from? Uh, I think it started um, um, where I grew up, um, uh, around the dinner table, actually. Uh, we were three, three brothers and, uh, and my father, and we were all very keen on telling stories. Uh, uh, my father was, of course, the best storyteller, so um, he would tell most of the stories, and, and, and they were long stories, like really long stories. Uh, and, uh, and, and they were also, you know, he would exaggerate so, so much, but that was part of the storytelling, so eight out of 10 stories would just be so exaggerated we wouldn't believe them and uh, the the two last stories they they will be you know total lies so um, so but 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 whenever we caught him lying he would refer to a, a german researcher on uh, human behavior called uh, sepp windler uh, who uh, won the nobel prize in 1968 according to my father for work where he proved that in families uh, where they lie on a regular basis, their, uh, their uh, life is se lifespan is seven years longer than in other families. <laughs> so um, that was, I sort of grew up with, uh, you know, the idea that uh, lying is, is, is healthy. <laughs> Weren't you a great teller of ghost stories? And you used to frighten yourself? I, um, I was. Uh, I don't, I don't know if I was a great storyteller, but I did tell ghost stories. Uh, we used to go to my grandmother's village uh, in the holidays, and all the kids, uh, we used to sleep in one big room in the attic, and uh, then we would tell each other ghost stories. 
I, I was the youngest there, but um, they used to ask me, Joe, now can't you tell a ghost story? And, um, and I would give it a go. And afterwards, they would ask me again, tell another one and another one. So in the end, I, I would be the storyteller in the attic. And uh, I thought for many years, I believed that that was because I was the best storyteller. But many years later, they told me that they asked me because they wanted me to tell the ghost story because they could hear the fear in my voice when I told the stories. <laughs> so um, yeah, I, uh, I was probably not a good storyteller, but I was a scared storyteller. <laughs> Now, your path to becoming a novelist hasn't been a straightforward one. You've had, I mean, three really distinct, or well, sometimes at the same time, careers. As a professional footballer, as a city analyst, and as a rock star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't a professional soccer player, but I, I, I did play for a, for a team in, the, in over that um, at the time, we were half professional, um, but um, um, yeah, I, the, the interesting thing about, um, because I, I had to quit playing soccer at the age of 19 because I broke ligaments in, in both knees, um, and, um, but when you become known as a writer, uh, the myth about me as a football player is growing every year. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, by now I was, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the lost Maradona of, uh, of Molde, which is nice, of course. So it was uh, probably a yeah, good career move as a soccer player to, to, to break my ligaments. <laughs> but tell me about the, you know, your work in the financial world and how it coincided. Because you worked by day, didn't you? And then did gigs yeah, by night? Uh, well, I, um, I, uh, I studied uh, um, economics and business administration, and then I went on to work as a financial analyst and a, and a stockbroker. And uh, um, I had just moved to, to Oslo, and uh, we started a band, uh, some friends of mine from, uh, from Molde and my brother. And uh, we played in this small club in Oslo. And at that time, it was not, not a problem. We played like once a week uh, at this club and I, while I worked as a stockbroker. Uh, the other guys in the band, they were full-time musicians. Uh, but I was sort of the, you know, uh, um, the songwriter and the singer in the band. Um, um, we wrote a song about a ski jumper that was, um, you know, if, uh, for some reason, uh, people like that song. Uh, I think they eventually, I don't think they like the song, they like the lyrics. Um, and it started getting played on radio and then we got the record deal. Um, but we didn't sell any records. So it was still no problem to work as a stockbroker. Uh, actually, I, I, I had to work as a stockbroker to pay the rent. Um, and um, then, but then we released our second album. Um, and we had two big hits, and suddenly overnight we were this, you know, uh, the best-selling band in Norway. And we were used to playing at uh, at colleges. Most of our audience were were uh, students. Mm -hmm. uh, most of them guys um, and uh, nerds, really, uh, <laughs> with black T-shirts. But they were, you know, they were really die-hard fans. Um, but um, then we had this huge uh, 
um, these two huge hits, and suddenly there would be girls coming to our gigs. <laughs> and the guys in the black t-shirts, they really hated that. They, they, they thought it was sellouts, you know. <laughs> now you have girls at the gigs, you know. It's, uh, it's not supposed to be like that. You are to sing about ski jumpers and... Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, but I had sort of promised my mother that I would keep my day job. Um, and here we were playing 180 gigs a year and I still working as a stockbroker. So my life would more or less be like this. I would be in my office uh, working until four o'clock. Then the stock exchange would uh, close. You'd hear the bell of the, on the stock exchange. And I would um, immediately grab my bag under my desk, run into the street and uh, get a cab and drive to the airport and take uh, a plane to wherever my band was. Mm. Um, they were traveling with a bus. And so I'd get there. Uh, Ripping your collar and tie off. And yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It was, uh, you know, and uh, I would hopefully be there in time for the sound check, at least in time for the gig. After the gig, uh, the rest of the guys in the band, they would go off to some party with some beautiful girls. And I would go back to the hotel to get some hours sleep, to get the first plane back to Oslo, hopefully in time for when the stock exchange opened. And then I would be working to four o'clock until I could hear the bell, grab the bag, run into the street, get the cab. So my, my life was like that for um, a year and a half, two years. And uh, I was more or less totally exhausted. Um, and so I went to my band and said that I have to take some time off. I don't want to go touring again for a long, long mm -hmm. time. And I went to my, my boss at the stock exchange or at the brokerage firm and said that um, I have to take some, take some time off. And then I brought my laptop. Uh, I went to Australia. And um, it was while I was there that I wrote my first novel. And that was the introduction to Harry Hurler. It was. Uh, I didn't know at the time that it was going to be a series. Actually, when I started writing that novel, I, I was pretty much convinced that it wouldn't be published. I mean, it was my... I had been writing lyrics, I had been writing short stories, but it was, was my first attempt at a, at a novel. Um, and that was actually why I decided to write a crime novel also. It was... Um, I figured that I will not do the same mistake as all my friends have done. Uh, they started writing, you know, the first novel at the age of uh, 18 or mm -hmm. 19, and they would right away try to write, you know, the big European mm -hmm. novel. Uh, and so I decided I'll, I'll do something simple, see if I can do it. Something really simple, like a crime novel. Um, so, um, I, I got on the plane to, uh, to Sydney, also Sydney, that is around 33 hours. And uh, during those 33 hours, I came up with this character, Harry Hole, and uh, a plot for the, for the first novel. I finished the novel in five weeks. Um, it was, and it was such a great kick, you know, because I was 37 at the time. And I... Um, the minute I sat down and started writing the novel, uh, I knew that I've been waiting to do this for years. 
And I would, I, I, I didn't see anything of mm. Australia. I, I would stay in a hotel room in Sydney, uh, writing for around 18 hours a day, uh, just running out. Uh, I was staying in the red light mm. district in Darlinghurst Road. And I would just run out into the street, get something to eat, and then run yeah. back to my small little dark hotel room and keep on typing. Um, so I finished the novel in five weeks. I came back. Um, I started uh, working at a brokerage firm again. Um, or actually, I didn't. I, I came in the first day. I turned on my laptop um, or my computer and um, to check you know, the oil prices, the dollar uh, rates, uh, Dow Jones, and before you know the the screen had lit up, I knew that I can't do this any longer. I have to write. So I went to my boss office and I said, that, "Sorry, I I like the job here, but uh, I have uh, more important things to do. So um, I don't have time to work in. I have to write." And he said that uh, he, he figured that I would come to that conclusion sooner or later. So, um, so there I was. I didn't have a job. Uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I didn't. I didn't want to with the band mm -hmm. for a long, long time. Um, and then I had a phone call from the publishing house saying that um, uh, we have seen this uh, this novel. We have read it. Uh, I'd used a pseudonym, so they didn't know who who mm -hmm. I was, who they were phoning. But they said that we want to talk about this novel. Uh, we we are actually I think we are going to publish it, and uh, my first reaction would be, uh, really? Uh, can I have it back, please? You know, to to rework it. Um, but then I went over to the publishing house um, uh, a couple of days later. I would walk into this room with three guys sitting in uh, in chairs, and. Uh, the first question would be, um, we understand that this is not your real name. Um, so why did you use a pseudonym? And I said that, well, it's because I'm Joe Nespo, you know, the singer in uh, Didaira. And uh, nobody had heard about Joe Nespo. <laughs> 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 um, so it was a bit embarrassing. So I had to explain and I said, OK, yeah, we understand. But uh, OK, this novel, how, how long did it take you to to write this novel. And I figured that five weeks, it didn't sound like you know, a novel. So I said a year and a half. <laughs> and uh, and so, um, so it was published. Uh, the next, uh, next fall, it was published. And it um, sold almost nothing. Um, but it was well received by the, by the critics. And it received a couple of prizes. So I knew that I would get a chance to write the second novel. And it sold. A little bit more, um, and then I published my third novel, and that was *The Red Breast*. Mm -hmm. That was the first novel that was published in the mm -hmm. series here in the UK, yeah. and which also was a big breakthrough for me in uh, in Norway. And it's been, hasn't it, been voted the best Norwegian crime novel ever? *The Red Breast*. Uh, it has in mm. Norway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But still, there's a lot of competition in Norway. Crime writing. It is, yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, let's talk a little bit about Harry, the character of Harry, because I've read that he's been described as a kind of crime fiction uber-cliché because he's an alcoholic, mm. he's a maverick, he's driven, damaged, anti-authoritarian, and yet you make him into a really compelling creature. And I just wondered 
where all the ideas behind his character came from and how you've developed that over the series? Mm. Uh, well, he, he didn't start out as a fully developed character. Um, I didn't really think that much about the character of Harry when I started because uh, what I needed was um, a camera, uh, a reader's eyes into the events into the crime. Um, I was more actually putting more work into the victims, the suspects, uh, the police officers and characters in Australia than I did with Harry. And that is uh, perhaps why when I looked back uh, a couple of books later, I saw that I had used much of myself in the character. Mm. Um, but I also knew uh, when I started writing Redbreast, that I was interested in the character. And from then on, I, I started developing Harry into this, um, like you said, this cliche mm. of, um, uh, of a police detective. Uh, I had to make a choice at, uh, at that point, whether is, am I going to try to avoid, you know, the cliches of the hard-boiled detective, or, or should I go the other other way mm -hmm. and sort of embrace it and uh, and try to to exaggerate them and 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 see what I can mm -hmm. can use them for? And I decided that I mean I like this I like the cliches. Uh, there are good reasons mm -hmm. why they are cliches. They are um, you know uh, having a character like that um, it makes it makes it easy for the for the storyteller mm -hmm. to 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 make drama uh, to have conflicts. Uh, uh, conflicts also on uh, an inner level within the um, uh, detective and I think that most stories what they are actually about is not whether the detective or the hero is going to solve the case um, are going to uh, save somebody's mm -hmm. life or their own physical life um, what we're really interested in is whether the hero is going to make the right moral choice, given the moral dilemma. And uh, I think that is, um, in the series, um, that is the interesting thing about Harry. He is, this, he is not morally perfect. He will not always make the right choices, uh, but sometimes he will. And uh, that, I think that is why we forgive him for not always making the right uh, choices. And, I think it's interesting. Uh, why are we so interested in that? Uh, and I think it may have to do with religion in a way, uh, because it's about the eternal soul mm. of the hero. Um, will he go to heaven or will he go to hell? Uh, I mean, in a movie, I don't know if you've seen uh, Bad Lieutenant, uh, but that is a great mm. movie just about that, you know, about the hero as a sinner and about uh, whether his soul will, um, will uh, go to heaven or not. And of course, there's sometimes a very thin line <coughs> between Harry and his antagonists. Mm. And you're constantly exploring that. Uh, he's, throughout the series, I think he's, he's probably moved closer and closer to the dark side. Yeah. And uh, um, one of his frustrations is that um, is that catching the killer is um, somewhat of an anticlimax. Mm. It's, um, it's almost like the serial killer for whom um, 
the killing always is an anti-climax. Mm. So, so he has to do it again. And it's, it's, it's as if it's the same thing with Harry. He has to go on and catch more killers because he can never find what he's looking for. And I think one of the reasons um, is that he's uh, becoming more and more similar to the people he's, mm. uh, he's hunting. Like all the best crime novels, your books are a commentary on the wider Norwegian society. And you particularly explore political extremism and deep social problems. And of course, Harry is hunts down serial killers. And traditionally, in Norway, there have not been many serial killers until the 22nd of July, very, very memorably. And you wrote a really, uh, many of you might have read uh, Joe's piece that was published in The Guardian about Nor Norway's lost innocence after the 22nd of July. And I mean, just I very movingly wrote at the last paragraph, so if there is no road back to how things used to be, to the total unconscious and naive fearlessness of what was untouched, there is a way forward to be brave, to keep on as before, to turn the other cheek as we ask, was that all you've got? to refuse to allow fear to set limits to the way we continue to build our society. I think very many of us who were reading that were just bowled over by the humanity you showed in that so soon after those events. A month on now, what, what do you think are going to be the lasting effects for the country? Um, I, I think that... Um, uh, I think that the um, Norwegians, we, we sort of surprised ourselves um, with how we reacted. Uh, I think it was a very mature and sober reaction to, uh, to, to, um, to what happened. Um, I, uh, I must say that it was one thing that was especially touching for me because you know you had all this you had the prime minister of course doing a great job all 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 these people had their had the, you know the public eye on them so so you could see what was happening and they were all doing a great job but what happened in in, in oslo downtown oslo in the areas that i um, um, use in my 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 stories um, you had all the windows being uh, blown, blown out, you know, destroyed. And you had uh, the next morning, you had all these people, I don't know what the English word is, uh, the people who work with glass. What glaciers, yeah. Glaciers. Glaciers. Yeah. You had them come out and nobody had asked them. Mm. You know, they were just all over the city, you know, traveling into Oslo and just fixing the glass for free you know it's a uh, they just did the job and that was for me um so touching mm. and it was like a, a proof that i i at that moment i was really proud of you know being in Norwegian. can you tell how things are going to go from now on i think and i hope that thing uh, things will get back to normal things are getting back to uh, to normal uh, and i um and I don't think uh, we are ever going to forget. And I don't think we should forget. <coughs> uh, but I think we have to get back to normal. You know, we have to start, you know, laughing again. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an election election coming up, 
and we have to discuss real political problems. Uh, the Labour Party that was the victim uh, in, the, um, in this massacre, um, they have to, you know, uh, now they have to um, stand up for what they believe in. And, you know, they, they, they have to uh, come with good arguments why they should uh, run the country mm -hmm. another four years. Um, or this is the, mm -hmm. the, the, the local elections. But um, I think that things ha have to get back to normal. This has happened. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, keep moving forward and build our society. You know the way we we have, and not let let, let this be something that we don't forget. But um, um, let's not change anything. Mm -hmm. I think that is uh, that is the feeling now, and the, the, that's the way the people think now. Is that not don't let this change anything. Mm -hmm. There was also a meeting in the Labour Party just after uh, the massacre, and they had. I think just to prove a point, they had even less security than normal in that meeting with mm. all the, you know, the mm. leaders in the Labour Party uh, meeting in Oslo. Do you think there'll be an effect on crime writing? There will be, definitely. Uh, uh, it's hard for me to tell exactly in what way, uh, but just, um, and I don't think it's necessarily something that the crime writers will think about consciously, you know, uh, how should we write a crime mm. novel now? But I think that we have all, we have all changed, you know, not much, but a little bit. It's all, um, it's there in the back of our heads. And um, I think that everything that, that's on a writer's mind will find its way to the paper. Yeah. And so will this event. It was said in Sweden it took about five years after the assassination for the great outpouring of Scandinavian crime coming out of Sweden. So it may take some time. Yeah, I think, I think it's hard, it's, mm. it's, it's hard to, um, to uh, predict exactly uh, uh, how it will influence writing, not only crime writing, but cr yeah. writing in general in, in Norway and, uh, and Scandinavia. <laughs> but I have no doubt that it, it will influence mm. the way we, uh, we think and write and uh, communicate. Mm. It's been said that it's a fundamental paradox of Scandinavian for all the region's stability and order, that there are these deep-seated anxieties and about crime and social disintegration. And there is kind of beneath the tranquil surface, pre-22nd of July, there's a sort of dark spirit of foreboding. Is, is that why there's such an appetite for violent, dark crime in Scandinavia, do you think? Because I think for... British readers, I think we, we would mark out Scandinavian writing as, as being violent and, and very dark. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think, first of all, it has to do with, um, with um, uh, I mean, why there are so many Scandinavian crime writers and uh, uh, for the time being good mm. Scandinavian crime writers. I think that has to do with tradition. Um, uh, and stemming back to the 70s when you had two Swedish writers, Sjöval and Balde, mm -hmm. writing political crime novels. Uh, and more importantly, they were good crime mm -hmm. novels. Um, and uh, uh, they sort of moved the crime novel from the kiosks and into the mm -hmm. bookstores together with the serious literature. Mm -hmm. uh, and that in turn meant that many of the young, talented, storytellers and writers who would otherwise
probably uh, write so-called serious literature, mm. they used, they found the crime novel useful for their talent, for their storytelling abilities. Mm. Um, and I think uh, even nowadays you have um, serious and good writers uh, like, uh, for example, uh, Lars Sobe Christensen mm. uh, with the half-brother, Jan Kjersta, um they all at some time will have a go at the crime novel. Mm. It's like it's something that you, you have a go at at some time in your career. Um, so um, I think that is, that is probably um, the most important reason why we have so many crime novels. Uh, whether they are darker um, and more violent, you mm. said they were more violent than other uh, crime, crime novels in other countries. Um, right. I, I haven't reflected on mm. that. Um, I'm not sure whether they are more violent than hard-boiled American novels. Um, I think that, but maybe they are perceived that way. Mm. I think it's interesting that readers seem to um, to see the context that um, one person killed in a village in mm. Scandinavia, an innocent village. Mm. Is actually more shocking yeah. than the person killed, you know, in the back streets of uh, New York City. Yeah. I think even readers in New York City, living yeah. in those back streets, they find it more shocking reading about the murder, you know, on the other side of the mm. planet in a village in Scandinavia in, than in their own backyard. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think it's just perceived that way. What about climate? What is the effect, do you think, of climate on crime fiction, on, on de your detectives? I was hearing something about um, Donna Leone's lovely um, Venetian detective. You know, he's so happy. He has three full meals a day. It's a lovely um, home life. And that's not something that's enjoyed by the Scandinavian detectives. Is there, a, is there an effect? Effect of the climate. I think that um, the only effect I can see is that um, in places where it rains a lot, you have primaries. <laughs> We felt a great fellow feeling in Scotland. Mm. The, the novels are very tightly plotted. They're full of really breathtaking surprises, unflagging narrative tension. How, how do you go about constructing those plots and writing them? Um, usually, for my first novels, I, I started with, uh, with the plot or constructing the story. Um, um, now, it's more like I, I know that I know how to construct a story, and I know that I will figure out the plot. So now I start more with characters and uh, uh, certain key scenes that I want in the, in the story. Um, but uh, constructing the plot is, uh, you know, something I really like to do, and I spend a lot of time doing that. Um, normally, I will I will write first um, a synopsis of um, five pages for the story, mm. then uh, another one with 20 pages where I have bits and pieces of the plot. Mm. And then uh, before I start writing uh, chapter one, my last synopsis will be around 100 pages where uh, I have carefully, every element of the plot will be in there, every twist and turn. Mm. And I will also put in bits and pieces of um, dialogue and the reason why I have started doing that is uh, because I discovered that 
the only thing that sometimes comes as a surprise is that the character will take will will, will be different from what I had planned, and they will sort of try to take the story somewhere else. Um, so I, I I put in pieces of dialogue because I find that the character uh, characters come to life when they start speaking, mm. and that's when you sometimes get the surprise. So if I have them speak a little bit in the synopsis, I'm pretty sure that I know who they are. Um, and um, also, I mean, having written three synopsises and the last one on of 100 pages, it gives me, you know, um, the feeling that when I sit down and I start typing chapter one, uh, I know the story. It's not mm -hmm. like I'm going to make up a story. Uh, but it's like I have already told the story. The story is perfect. My only job is to retell the story like when we were sitting around the dinner yeah. table. We never told new stories. They were always the same old mm. stories told over and over again. And um, so I'm, um, I feel that I can tell my readers, come sit closer mm. because I have this great story to tell you and I know how it goes. Uh, and um, um, the only way I can fail is if I, if I don't tell the story mm. the right way. The story is already there. I mean, like your dad, the stories are getting longer. Yeah. yeah. Yes, that's true. And they, you often leave little plot lines dangling between books. Mm. Um, and I wondered why you do that. I like the feeling, it is, a, it is a series, and so I like the feeling of the series, that you, you, you treat it mm. as a series. Uh, there are standalone novels, so, but there are some, but there's also um, um, a bigger storyline that has to do mm. with Harry, and uh, there you have, um, um, there you have uh, uh, not cliffhanger. Yeah, well, to a mm. certain extent, cliffhanger is mm. about Harry that uh, will be um, that I will take up again in the next uh, next novel, of course. But um, I can remember a movie, a movie that uh, many people um, and many critics didn't like, Starship Troopers, uh, cheesy name, <laughs> and uh, but it's a standalone movie. Mm. But it has this feeling of a series, mm. like it's a, a sequel. Mm. Um, even at the start, you have a feeling that, okay, there's a, there was a movie before mm. this. I didn't see that. And at the end, you have a feeling that it's going to be a sequel. Um, and I just like that because, uh, I, I don't know, it was something I grew up with. There's magazines and, and uh, 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 cartoons and graphic novels where you had, mm. you know, um, um, you had this feeling, you, you couldn't afford the previous one, and yeah. you couldn't uh, uh, afford the next yeah. uh, next one. So you had to sort of do with the one you had, uh, which you read over and over again, and you didn't know what had happened before and what was going to happen next. But uh, I was okay with that. Now, in your latest to be published here, The Leopard, I think there are three occasions where Harry comes close to dying. Mm -hmm. Is are you trying to tell us something, the reader, in terms of what's going to I am trying to tell you something, yes. Uh, uh, but about Harry, um, well, um, like I said, um, 
uh, I have a storyline for Harry, and when I made a movement with my hand like this, mm. it means that uh, it stops here, and uh, and that's the end. Uh, in a, um, he's not going to have eternal life, and uh, he is getting closer to the end. Um, it's. Uh, um, I'm not going to tell you how many no. books it will no. take no. Or, or, or how it is no. going to end. Um, but um, he is the kind of character that is uh, falling apart bit by bit. Mm. And uh, uh, in the end, uh, there won't be anything left. On that sober note, let's, should we have the house lights up? Because I'm sure there'll be loads of people wanting to ask questions. And just while we do that, there's a roving mic, so put your hand up if you'd like to ask uh, something. I just wanted to ask you, because quickly, before we take questions, you don't, you're famous in Norway not just for these novels. You've already written a standalone novel, which has been turned into a film. Mm. And you've written, is it three children's books, which yes. have got a fantastic titles, Dr. Proctor and the Fart Powder. <laughs> yeah, my daughter liked that. Yeah. It was, uh, <laughs> I bet she did. Yeah, yeah well, uh, yeah, and uh, 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 this is. Uh, I, I wrote my first. I'm always, you know, suspicious when I hear that uh, musicians or writers they are going to record an album or or uh, uh, write a book because they just became a father or a mother. Uh, I mean, uh, more often than not, those are really bad albums and, uh, and, and books. Um, but I, I have to admit that um, I wrote my first children's novel because I just had a daughter, or not just had a daughter. She was old enough to, to, to hear my stories. And one summer, I told her a story that I particularly liked. Uh, and uh, I knew that this could be, um, could be a book. And it was about Dr. Proctor. My daughter had, you know, sort of, she would order me, you know, Daddy, come tell a story. And I would sit down and she was, uh, and I would say, okay, what's going to be in it? Well, this time uh, it's going to have a princess, it's going to have a dinosaur, um, a potato man, and, uh, and a little guy with red hair, uh, but, and, and a nice girl. Uh, or the nice girl is the princess. The princess looks a little bit like me. And, uh, <laughs> And the boy has to be, you know, shorter than the girl. Um, and so I came up with the story of uh, Lisa and, uh, and uh, Bulla, this really short, extremely short guy with the red hair and, um, and sideburns. And um, so it's like a mini Elvis. And, uh, and I asked her if uh, she wanted a mad professor in it. Um, and she said no, and I said, but Daddy wants a mad professor. Mm -hmm. Okay, mad professor. And I can, can we have some farting? <laughs> no, she said, no more farting. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, just a little bit. Well, okay, then, uh, a little bit. And so we more or less together came up with the story of uh, Dr. Proctor, who has uh, just invented a fart powder, uh, and um, he doesn't know what to do with it because um, it was, um, or he tried to invent a powder that would stop people from farting, <laughs> that you could use in, uh, in you know, uh, uh, funerals and in uh, <laughs> important meetings. And, uh, and, uh, but uh, it didn't sell anything. So Bulla would help him uh, reverse the formula. 
So you had, had really powerful parts. <laughs> and in the end, so powerful that uh, uh, you could shoot people up into the air. So <laughs> Bulla is coming up with the idea of trying to sell this um, uh, fart powder to, to NASA to, uh, to shoot astronauts into space, you know, you know to save money. And, um, and uh, yes, this is, uh, uh, and then um, um, some bad people comes into the story, of course, yeah. and things start happening. <laughs> Fantastic. Have you got any questions for Joe? Yes, a question for us up there. There are similar similarities between your character, Harry Hole, and Michael Connolly's character, Harry Bosch. Were you aware of Harry Bosch when you first constructed Harry Hole as a character? Um, I, I think I had read one of his novels, but actually I wasn't a great crime reader before I started writing myself. Um, so um, um, I think I had read one of his novels, but it, but it wasn't like, it, I wouldn't say he was a big influence. I was probably, probably more influenced by, by Jim Thompson. Uh, wrote in the 50s and, uh, and 60s, American writer. He wasn't so well known at that time. Well, he still isn't, but um, he was a great, great writer. He wrote uh, The Killer Inside Me, which was, uh, you know, sort of an American psycho written in the, in the 50s. Really scary stuff. Yes, question here. Can you tell me how you think up the torture instruments, like the, Le the Leopold's apple? And also oh, Leopold's apple, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Leopold's apple, um, just to explain, uh, that's a uh, that's metal ball, um, torture instrument or a uh, um, yeah, torture instrument that you put into your, or some, somebody else put into your mouth, probably. Um, and it has, um, there's a string attached to it and when you pull it, um, there will be uh, springs coming from the metal ball uh, that, uh, that makes it impossible for you to get uh, the ball, the Leopold's apple, out of your mouth. And if you pull the string one more time, there will be needles coming out. Um, and uh, in the start of the, of the, uh, the leopard, uh, two girls are found killed in, in Oslo, and they can't figure out how they've been killed. Um, uh, both girls have uh, 24 wounds uh, inside their mouth. Um, but uh, direct cause of death is drowning. They have drowned in their own blood. Um, and uh, I th I, I, I'm not sure how it came up with that uh, torture instrument, <laughs> but um, I think it may have to do with um, a happy childhood memory. <laughs> uh, it was, I, uh, we used to visit my grandmother's um, in a village um, in, um, uh, in the, uh, during the summer holidays, and uh, she had this big apple garden, uh, and she would tell us, my brother and I, that uh, that we were not uh, allowed to pick apples uh, because it was June and July, and uh, uh, we figured that okay, we can't pick apples, but she didn't say anything about eating apples, <laughs> so we would climb into the trees and eat the apples without picking them. <laughs> so uh, at the end of the summer, you, you would have these apple trees full of half-eaten apples. <laughs> and one day, uh, when we were um, in one of the trees, 
um, there was this big apple. And my brother would sort of dare me to say, if, if I could put the whole apple into my mouth. And uh, uh, me being quite competitive, of course, I, I, I was able to squeeze the apple into my mouth. Uh, but I wasn't able to get it out again. <laughs> and so there I would be sitting on the branch with the apple still attached to the tree. And I started thinking that what will happen if I don't get it out again? Uh, I will have to sit here for days. And the apple is still growing. <laughs> so will my head eventually explode? So I think that was the background for the uh, Leopold's apple. <laughs> <laughs> Question here and here. Hi. Um, obviously, you mentioned earlier about Harry Hall's first one in Australia. Do you know if there's any plans to translate that one into English? Excuse me, if? Do you know if they plan to translate the first book into English as well? Um, uh, they are. Uh, the first two books, The Batman and The Cockroaches, uh, will be translated uh, to English. Hopefully, the first one will be published next year, I think. Mm. You've got a fantastic translator in Don Bartlett. I know, I know. I, mean, I don't know everybody else thinks, but I mean, his, his ear for dialogue, mm. the way his the fluency is, is absolutely fantastic. Mm. Yeah. The telling is better than the original. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't judge. <laughs> Question here. When you're a well-known crime writer, do you have a massive following amongst the police and criminal fraternity? <laughs> Yes, actually, um, it's very interesting uh, because um, I, uh, um, I have some friends at the, at the uh, police force in, uh, in Oslo who help, help me uh, when I do research for, uh, for the books. And uh, I heard that there's uh, one of the meeting rooms at the Oslo uh, uh, police house now is named after Harry. Uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and also among the criminals, you know, they are, uh, I went to, many years ago, I went to, uh, to, uh, to read for some of the prisoners at the uh, prison in, um, in Oslo. And uh, after the, the reading, I, I asked the audience, uh, okay, um, I'm doing some research on, on bank robbery. I don't know if there are any bank robberies here, but are there anyone here who are willing to, to help me with information on bank robberies? And the whole audience was me, 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 me. So, yeah. It's a question, second row. Before the uh, massacre in Norway in July, uh, Norway has always been portrayed here by the media as a sort of utopian society uh, where, with its fabulous wealth, oil fund and very high standard of living and yet you write about the sort of darker side of society and do you think this is a good thing that we see that there are other parts of it is not a utopia that is portrayed here by the media um, well um, first of all I I write um, fiction uh, and so I it's not like uh, my novels are not meant to portray, give a true portrayal of, of, of Norwegian society or of Oslo. And also, the Oslo that I portray is not 100% the real Oslo. It's sort of a, a bit darker and more twisted uh, than the Oslo that you, you see when you go there. 
but it is Oslo. I mean, it, 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 the atmosphere and uh, um, the physical description of Oslo, it's uh, definitely Oslo. But it's sort of um, like Gotham City. Batman's Gotham City is a version of New York City. Then Harry's Oslo is sort of a, um, a Gotham City. Uh, but having said that, it's, um, I think it's, it's probably true that, um, that Scandinavian countries and Norway is uh, uh, sort of an utopia, at least. They have, after um, Second World War, I would say that Norway has, uh, generally speaking, had success as a social democratic society. I mean, if you go back to the 20s, Norway was one of the poorest countries in Europe, together with uh, Ireland, uh, Portugal, and, and, and Greece. Um, and so it's, um, 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 even before uh, we found oil, uh, Norway, you know, the standard of living was improving dramatically. Um, but then again, you have, you know, you don't have societies that are uh, completely without problems. And for example, drugs uh, have been a big problem, in, especially in Oslo. You have the um, heroin uh, was a big problem in Oslo even back in the 70s and uh, has been ever since. Uh, Oslo had one of the uh, biggest numbers of um, deaths from overdoses per capita. Uh, I think only compared to Amsterdam there for, uh, for a while. And still is a big problem. Uh, you have had international crime coming to, to Oslo, prostitution, uh, uh, human trafficking. Uh, all those are also problems in, in Oslo. It's not like uh, we are an exception. So um, uh, it's, um, it's not a perfect society, but uh, I think that uh, uh, from a young age on, uh, I spent most of my money traveling to see other countries. And I think that was a good lesson for me to, to learn that when we're at home complaining about things, we are really complaining about the small things. So we, we, we are very fortunate to, uh, to live in Norway. Oh, there's a question right at the back. I was formulating this question in my head and it came out wrong first time round. I wanted you to talk about Harry's victim in the snowman um, and the relationship and the fact that Harry stopped him sort of dying so he could meet justice. But actually then I thought maybe it's not completely wrong that he's Harry's victim. Can you, because that relationship continues into the leopard, doesn't it? Can you tell us a bit more about that? The his uh, re relationship to the snowman? Mm, yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, that um, he is um, um, was probably uh, especially true with uh, another of the um, uh, antagonists in one of the previous novels, um, Tom Wallid, was a police detective. Mm -hmm. He was, I think that um, uh, it was very disturbing for Harry that he realized that Tom Waller is probably uh, more or less a twin soul. You know, they, they, they have so many, they share so, so many, um, uh, the personalities that they are, are in many ways so similar. Um, I don't think they're very different uh, personalities. Um, but um, I don't know if their personal relationship is important, but 
What is interesting in Leopard is that uh, he will have to ask the snowman um, uh, to help him. And I think he finds that really disturbing. And, and, and so he is drawn between uh, the help that he needs for the investigation and his personal hatred for this person. But he also feels a bit of pity for him. But I, I don't think that the snowman and Harry, that they are, you know, twin souls in the same disturbing way that, uh, that snowman and Harry was. I think we've got time for one last question. Yes, in the second row. Hi, um, you said that you've got plans for Harry to sort of come to an end, which hope that doesn't happen too soon. But um, do you have an idea in your head about another kind of character or another series of books that would come after, or, or do you do you not plan that far ahead in terms of the novels you're going to write? Well, actually, my my, my problem is that, is that I have too many plans and, uh, and ideas and uh, so um, I think that we're, we're, I'm on a plane you know and, uh, and, and we're in bad weather and I fear that you know that we will crash I always think that uh, I hope that they can save my laptop with all my ideas or <laughs> you know that uh, at least you know I know that there's a um, a great deal of novels that I would like to write b before I die, and um, and uh, so uh, as a writer, it's uh, it's almost frustrating that it takes you know almost two years to write a novel. I wish it uh, that you know it could take five weeks. <laughs> um, so uh, the answer is uh, yes. I have ideas for other characters and other series, uh, but. Um, I don't know how, how many of them that I, I will have time to, to realise. Well, Joe, we look forward to those other books, but please let us stay a little while with Harry. <laughs> uh, I'm sure we'd all like to see many more books uh, featuring Harry, but could you just join me in thanking Joe Nesbo for a really fabulous hour? Thank you. Him. We'll be in the signing tent just next door and uh, come and get your book signed there. Joe, thank you so much. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.